0: This morning, we're looking at the journeys to Jerusalem of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're looking this morning at the very first journey that takes place in this account. And we're going to be reading from John's Gospel, and we'll be dealing with quite a lengthy section. Last week, Tim had 11 verses. Today, I have nearly two chapters. But what I will do is I will just abridge and we will highlight and focus on a couple of the incidents or accounts. So if you'd like to open with me, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 2. I will be reading from verse number 13. If you don't have a Bible, please do not worry. I'll try to read it as slowly and as clearly as possible. And I want to divide the reading into two parts. I'll deal with the first section to the bottom of chapter 2. And then later on, we'll read chapter 3. So it says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. As I mentioned, this is the first journey. and You'll be looking at the rest of the journeys over the incoming weeks through the first 11 chapters. Before we move to verse 14, let me set the scene for you. I want you to imagine for one moment that you are a first century Jewish pilgrim in Jerusalem. You have returned to Jerusalem for the Passover. As a matter of fact, you are required to return three times a year for significant feasts. And one of the main ones, if not the main one, was the Feast of Passover. You would have left your home. You would have traveled many days. You'd have come with friends, with family. You'd have journeyed along the roads. You'd have camped out at night. You'd have engaged with a lot of friendship. They'd have been singing. I don't know if they had the equivalent of guitars, but you can imagine sitting around a campfire and engaging in singing. And a lot of those songs are actually recorded for us in the book of Psalms. And they would have sung and journeyed along together. As they approached Jerusalem, They were filled with more and more expectation. I don't know if you have ever approached a major city from the countryside. I took a young fellow from Ballyclare with me to see Tokyo. He had never been in an airplane in his life. Can you imagine the impact of leaving Ballyclare and arriving in Tokyo? Well, it may not be quite to that extent. But certainly the impact of coming from a little country town to this massive walled city of Jerusalem would have been significant. And in there, in the center of that city, dominating everything around about it, was one of the early wonders of the world. And that was what was known there as Herod's Temple. By this stage, it was nearly complete. It had taken 46 years to build. It was an elaborate, beautiful building with many, many courtyards. And as a Jew, you would have made your way for the Passover. And one of the requirements would have been that you would pay money, the temple tax, and also that you would bring a sacrifice. As you had come up, you could purchase a sacrifice. You could purchase a turtle dove. Probably for the equivalent of 15 pence or you could even have brought your own little lamb which you have carried with you the whole way on the journey or you may have brought something more significant and you arrive there at the temple with your sacrifice and as they go in they inspect it I'm sorry, that lamb it isn't suitable what do you mean? Well, well it's got to be pure that lamb is slightly defiled; it's got a nick in the ear or it's got a mark in the hoof. You'll have to buy a temple lamb. Or those turtle doves are are not sufficient. You'll have to purchase a turtle dove. And so you look at the little lamb which you brought, which you have nourished, and you brought along, and it's not acceptable. And you go into the courtyard, and in there they're selling all these things for you. Now, don't get me wrong. In the book of Deuteronomy. It is permitted to engage in selling in the temple grounds But not to the extent that's happening here By no means You go into what is known as the court of the Gentiles Now the Bible talks about Jewish people And non-Jewish people as Gentiles So unless you're a Jew here, we're all Gentiles And so therefore you go into the court of the Gentiles And the court of the Gentiles is packed full of people selling You can imagine the smell and the dirt and everything else. And that is absolutely ironic because coming up to the feast of Passover, one of the things that the people would have been having to do would be to cleanse everything. As a matter of fact, they would clean the town and everything else, except when you get to the court of the Gentiles. And you go up and you say, sorry, um, apparently my turtle dove, which I bought for 15 pence outside, is not suitable." oh yes, don't worry, we have them here. Lift one out, I'll be 15 pounds, please. Uh, sorry, it's 15 cents, uh, yes, but these are special. These are these are temple dubs, they're 15 pounds. Uh, can I pay you? Uh, no, I'm sorry, we, we don't accept that money there. That comes from another region. That You see, the head on that coin is not suitable. We can't accept it. In You'll need to change your money. Well, where do I do that? Oh, i go over there and he's a money exchanger. And you go over there with your pence and your coins and you give them to him and he says, ah yes, well the exchange rate today, well if you've ever been to the airport you know what they do, the exchange rates. Only double it, triple it, quadruple it. And so what we have here is a whole scenario of corruption and of people being abused and of all sorts of things going on around about which are totally and absolutely inappropriate. At the head of all of this is a man who is known as the chief priest, Annas. And he is appointed by the Romans. The Romans actually kept the garments of the chief priest in custody in Jerusalem, and they decided who would wear them. It's all politics. And he's lifting money through his sons and all his agencies, and he's gathering all of this money together to pay taxes to the Romans, but also an awful lot of it is coming to himself. That's the scene. That's the scene. And into that scene we read verse 14. And he, that is Jesus, found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And he made a whip of cords. Now the word is very precise here. Don't think it's like one of these big bull whips that you crack and move cattle. This is a small whip. Of cords, To be quite honest with you It's a symbol of authority Rather than doing any damage But he made a a whip of cords And he drove them all Out of the temple He drove them all Out of the temple I want you to imagine That scene I, I don't know if you're a tourist Or if you're visiting And you've been to St. George's Market I'm not implying for one moment That St. George's Market is like this in many ways it is, but (laughs) St. George, imagine you go to St. George's Market, and you stand in the middle of St. George's Market, and you lift up this little whip, and you say, I'm going to clear this place. I don't think you'd get very far. Would you? And yet, this man, Jesus Christ, with a group of, let's call them for the sake of argument, motley disciples, stood in the middle of this massive undertaking, this massive political, economic bureaucracy. And he cleared it. He cleared it. And that in itself says something about the person of Jesus Christ. And he cleared it and he poured out the sheep, uh, with the, and the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the changers money. And he overturned the tables. Imagine the reaction. And to those who sold the doves, and this is an interesting little aside, He didn't open the cages. He didn't let them go. And to those who sold the doves, he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And at that point, the disciples remembered what was written. Now we need to go right away back into the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there are prophecies telling us about the one who would come. There's hundreds of prophecies telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would fulfill them. And this one that they talk about, Psalm 69, other than Psalm 22, is the most quoted prophecy or Psalm in the whole of the New Testament. And the disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house has eaten me up in other words what they were saying in that old prophecy was that the Messiah when he would come would cleanse the temple and so the Jews answered and said to him what sign do you show to us since you do these things note that little word sign comes in time and time again and Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple They're looking around this massive temple. Forty-six years it's taken to build it. And in three days I will raise it up. And they look at him. What are you talking about? What are you forty-six years we've been building this place and you say destroy it and in three days you'll rebuild it? They're standing there saying, what is he on about? And the Jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And we'll come back to that. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore when he had risen from the dead. The disciples remembered that he had said this to him. And they believed the scripture. And the word which Jesus had said. And we'll pause our reading there. Do you remember when you buy a car? Brand new car. Gleaming and clean. With that lovely new car smell. Or maybe you've never had the privilege of buying a new car, but you've decorated your bedroom or the lounge... And you put down a lovely Clean brand new carpet Well Nobody's allowed in my car With sweets Would probably be the first room Secondly Muddy shoes aren't allowed Thirdly Grandchildren are banned Fourthly Every Saturday I polish it Fifthly I go out and admire it. You know the feeling? That lasts for how long? The new carpet lasts for how long? You're not allowed in that new carpet with your shoes on. Okay. You're not allowed in that new carpet with your slippers on. Okay. Well, okay, get on the new carpet, but clean up after you. And it's just this gradual shift. And what we see here is what has gradually shifted. Because God in the Old Testament had said the way to my presence, the way at that time to meet me was through the temple. And he had set up these sacrifices as pictures of what was going to happen in the New Testament. But just ever so gradually, incrementally, over decades and over years, they had moved further and further and And further away from the truth. And so what we have here is a scenario in which people are now trying to buy, trying to purchase, trying to get themselves right with God. It has become a massive show. The Lord Jesus Christ talks about it and illustrates it in a different account. He talks about a a Pharisee and a widow woman. He talks about the Pharisee coming in and praying and he's there all show. Look at me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've given. Look at what I've done. Look at how important I am. And he talks about a little widow woman who comes in and gives all that she has quietly in the background. That's the contrast. And so what we have here is what God's initial plans were. Completely and totally destroyed. And that was the environment. Into which the Lord Jesus Christ. Stepped and worked. And moved. When he cleared the temple. What we have here. Is state. And church. What we have here. Is state. And religion. What we have here are politics. And man made ideas. And God's purpose. And what started off good corrupts. And we live in lands and countries today. And as I look along this gathering, not all of you are here from Northern Ireland. And for one moment, don't think that Northern Ireland is exempt from this. What do we mean when we say, for God in Ulster? What do we mean? When we look into our history... When we look at what has happened, when we have the church becoming completely and totally encroached by the state. And people starting to try to earn their way. The very, very early days of the movement that led to what we now know as the Crescent Church. In 1820 down in Dublin, the 1820s, 30s down in Dublin, one of the reasons it was founded was because of the interference of state and trying to control what they believed. And whenever you move to other countries across the globe, whether they're in the Far East or in Africa or wherever it is, you see state trying to control people. And we have in our own history state trying to control people and politics controlling people and people going out of their way to try to get things right with God. And they just get fed up with it because they know it's not right. We knew this isn't right. The people who were coming to the temple knew they were being embezzled. The people who came to the temple knew what was happening was wrong. But that's just the way it was. And they complained about it. And they grumbled about it. And they hoped that the Messiah would come and clear it all up for them. But they, 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 they realized it was wrong. So maybe your criticism today is of a church which has been manipulated and changed and corrupted. Maybe you look at Christianity from the eyes of the crusades. Or of the eyes of domination. Maybe you look at the whole message of, and from a political point of view. And you say, that, that's not what it was all about. Man comes in. And man has corrupted. And the Lord Jesus Christ went in. And he cleared it. The first point is this You cannot buy Your way back to God Can I emphasize emphasize that please Many, many, many leaders Of various religions around the world Will say in order for you To get back to God You have to do You have to give You have to go. And what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here is completely wrong. And how do I know that? Because he then gives the illustration, and he gives the illustration of the temple. And he says, this temple, I'll destroy it. I'll destroy it. They're looking and they're thinking, what's he talking about? But he's not talking about the temple. He's talking about his body. He's talking about a future event. One which is going to happen in a matter of years. Where he is going to hang on a cross. And it is through him and access via him into God's presence. And so we have this scenario. And the disciples say, whenever he died and whenever he rose again... They remembered his words. So let's pick up the reading again in verse 23. Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. And during the feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now John doesn't specifically tell us here What the signs and the miracles are that he did. He is very, very selective in what he talks about. He says many things that Jesus did which books could not record. He actually says that. And so he's very selective. But in this case, he doesn't tell us. But he says many signs. And if you look at the rest of the Bible, you know what sort of signs they were. The blind could see. The lame could walk. The hungry were fed. The dead were raised. And many, many signs that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Some people believed him because of the signs. But they were believing because they thought, maybe we could get something out of this. We see that whenever he fed the 5,000, they tried to make him king. But he had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man then we come to this famous story. I'm sure if you were to ask people who in Northern Ireland who know very very little about the Bible to quote a couple of verses there are two verses in this little passage that they could probably turn to one is you must be born again you've heard of the phrase born again Christian and the second verse is for God so loved the world And if you were to drive around Northern Ireland, certainly when I was growing up, everywhere you went, you saw these signs up. You must be born again for God so loved the world. So let's see what it means. Now remember, the first part of the journey, cleansing the temple. You can't buy your way. You can't earn your way. You can't engineer your way no matter how corrupt it is you you can't do it and here we have the contrast and there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus his name means victory over the people victory over the people Interesting in the context of what we've just read. And so he was a Jew. He was very, very proud of his birth. He was born as a Jew. He was a a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he really believed that salvation was by works. They had all sorts of rules. For example, one of the rules was that a woman was not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Not that looking in the mirror was wrong, but if she saw a grey hair, she might pull it out and that would be work, so don't look in the mirror. Crazy rules. Rules that people had to abide by. But they thought that that was the way to get to God. Your birth and rules. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. We read that later on. In other words, he was a member of the ruling council. He was a politician. And we also read later on that he was a scribe. In other words, he was a professional student and and a professor of the law. In other words, if he lived here in Northern Ireland today, he would probably have a job up there in Queen's University. He was a man of really great importance. A Jew. And it says, this man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi... He said to him, Rabbi, teacher, That's a strange way to introduce yourself whenever you're Nicodemus. And this is a man from Nazareth. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he was impacted by the signs, what he had seen. And here's the verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind sounds where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born again. What does that mean? Well, at the level at which Nicodemus understood it, it's ridiculous. How can a person be born again? The one thing you had no control over was your birth. You didn't know you were going to be born. You didn't arrange That you were going to be born. And whenever you were born, you were born into a family and into a nation, and you develop characteristics, and the way in which you look like and behave is linked. I would sometimes speak, and some of the older people who would remember me, I remember my father, would say, You look just like your dad. Or one person said to me once, You're a chip of the old block. I told him i call tell him you call my dad an old block. But that's the character. You look like your dad. You behave like your dad. Or your mother if you're unlucky. But you behave like people. And that's what the character that you are. And that's what we assume that he's talking about him. But no, he's talking about a spiritual birth. Whenever you are born, you're born into something in this world. Spiritually, if you haven't got anything, if you're void, if you're empty, if the Bible says you're dead, that's what the Bible describes you. It says if you don't have this faith, you're you're dead. There's a vac- vacancy. There's nothing there. You need this new birth, which can be interpreted as a gain or a from above. You need God to to speak into your life. You need God to come into your life. You need for him to take control of your life, to take control of your being, for you spiritually to be reborn, to be awakened, to come to life. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about here. He's talking about you actually becoming spiritually alive. Here's what he's saying. Without this experience, you are spiritually dead. He goes on to say this. I'm going to move down to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That which I have read to you is the most famous verse in the Bible. When my parents were missionaries in Japan, they used to call it the Mount Fuji of the Bible. You'll have seen the Rugby Rugby World Cup in Japan at the moment. And you'll have seen there at the very start the picture of Mount Fuji. And it's a beautiful mountain. It stands out from all the rest. It's majestic. It encapsulates Japan. This verse, one single verse, brings so many truths together. Look at it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Condemned already, not born, no life. And he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen and that they have been done by God. For God so loved the world. In the last couple of minutes the author of this verse For God. We as Christians obviously believe in the God who created this world. We as Christians believe in a God who is interested in every person including you in this world. We as Christians believe that God has a purpose for this world. We believe that as Christians, that God will and is wanting to redeem the people from this world. God is wanting to make His own special people. We as Christians believe that, that God loved the world. God loved the world. You may be from China. You may be from parts of Africa, parts of Europe. You may even be from England. We don't talk about you, <laughs> especially in rugby terms. money joking. You may be from England. You may be from the south of Ireland. You may be from Belfast. You're part of the world. You're part of the world. There is absolutely no distinction made. We do make no distinction about whether you're male or female. Whatever color your skin or creed might be. God loved you. God loves you. Here's a wonderful message of the gospel. There is a God who created you. And there's a God who's reaching out to you. Not pointing the finger and saying, you are condemned. He's pointing out and he's saying, I love you. But if you do not believe, you are condemned. Let's not say that the Christian message is one of oppression. This is saying to you, look, there's a God who loves you and a God who wants you to live. And sometimes we think about this as something future. Now, when we all die, we we go to heaven. Yes, that's very, very true. There's nothing that I want to dilute from that fact at all. But the reality is that God wants you to live life right now, everlasting life. Life in his totality right here while you're alive on planet earth. This is life that you might have life to the full. God loves you and God wants you to have life. But he's saying in order for that to happen, he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Him into this world To die on a cross To satisfy The demands of a holy God So that You could Have this Life And this is imperative in its tense This is not giving you an option This is saying not saying maybe This is not saying possibly This is not saying this is one of the many routes This is the route I make absolutely no apology for saying to you from this platform this morning, there is only one way back to God. There is no other way. There is no other practice. There is no other God. There is only one way. And it's imperative and it comes in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe. 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 And he uses the word the gift of God. Contrast that to the temple. Contrast that to the first 15 minutes we talked about buying your way, political oppression, man's pride. Man's claim of goodness Man doing everything he could Man usurping the authority of God Everything that was corrupt He says no, no, no Set that all aside This is a gift There's nothing nicer than a gift Nothing more pleasant to receive But you've got to take it You've got to reach out and accept it the Lord Jesus used an illustration just before this verse to clarify the whole thing. He talked about an incident in Numbers chapter twenty-one, when the people of Israel had rebelled against God. They started complaining about the manna, and they started to rebel and were speaking in anger and sinning against God. And in Numbers twenty-one, you can read this story. And there was a, snakes came into the camp, poisonous snakes and they they were biting people and people were dying and God said, there's a solution to this problem and he told Moses to take a brazen serpent and to raise it up in the centre of the camp and he said if you look you live it wasn't just a a cursory glance but that's a serpent you looked at that serpent you believed that that look could heal you and you were healed of the snake bite it required you to look and to believe it didn't require you to go through payment, it didn't require you to go through all sorts of things, you looked and you believed God says my son the Lord Jesus Christ will be raised on the cross and you look and you believe and you have eternal life Life everlasting. Meaningful life right now that lasts for all eternity. There's another part to the verse we can't neglect. Should not perish. There were people in that camp, that Israelite camp, refused to look. There were people who refused to look for various reasons. They died of their snake bite. But those who looked, lived I'm not preaching a hellfire sermon But I'll tell you this You, decision, determines where you spend eternity Not tomorrow Not a couple of hours Not a couple of days Eternity and don't even ask me to try to define eternity. But God says, look and live. I was speaking one night in Apsley Hall around the corner. I used an illustration which I've used many, many, many times. And you'll have heard me using it and make no apology for it. If you're a visitor in Northern Ireland, we will have taken you to see Carreca Rope Bridge. We always do. I have never crossed Carreca Rope Bridge in my life. I have no intention of falling 80 feet into the sea. But for some reason, tourists seem to think that it's good fun, so we take them. In order to get to that little island, you've got to cross that rope bridge. You've got to walk across it. You've got to go down a flight of stairs. And you've got to step out onto this rope bridge... ...80 feet above the tide and walk out to that island. Now beside it there's a mass, massive big plaque... ...that tells you everything you need to know about that rope bridge. You can read it. You can understand it. You actually will believe it. Because if you don't believe it you won't go on the rope bridge. You believe it. You can even sing about the rope bridge. I'm sure somebody's written a song about Cargary rope bridge. But unless you step onto that bridge... ...move onto that bridge... You don't get to the island. Unless you commit yourself to that bridge. And I spoke like that in in Opsy Hall too many years ago to remember. And as I was speaking, I looked into the hall and my Uncle Ken was sitting there. He was dying of terminal cancer. And I looked straight at Uncle Ken and I said to him, you've got to step out onto the bridge. He wasn't a Christian. His wife took him home that night They took him into his house, helped him in. And he got to the second step as he tried to climb the stairs to his bedroom, and he couldn't go any further. And he sat on that step, and he told me a couple of days later, just before he died David, as I sat on that step, I stepped onto the bridge. I knew what he meant. He knew what he meant. In that moment in time he placed all of his trust in the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today he has eternal life. The story, the message that I have brought to you this morning is so solemn. So solemn. It is so important. Please do not think of Christianity in terms of the first half of the story. A corrupt system out to make money. This is not what it's about. Jesus Christ came to destroy that. He said, I'm coming and I'm giving you a gift. A gift. All you have to do is believe. You probably have more questions than answers right now. You probably are trying to think, what is this all about? Well, we've talked about Christianity Explored. It commences on Wednesday night. Over the next six weeks, we will be unpacking this whole truth more. Robin, Robin's here at the front. Robin, you wouldn't mind standing up? I hope you're not embarrassed, Robin. But Robin, Robin has cards. And Robin, is Phil here as well? No, Phil's downstairs looking after the children. But if you want to talk and find out more, please speak to Robin. He'll tell you about Wednesday night. There'll be no pressure on you. Nothing. Come along and hear more. This is an opportunity for you to hear more clearly what the Bible is saying. And more importantly, how it impacts into your life. Your life. Don't worry about the people around about you. It's you. This moment in time, it's you. God. That's all that's here. You and God. And God so loved the world, so loved you, that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in Him will not perish. But have everlasting life. Life for the present. And life to the full. And life for all eternity. It's not the first half of the story. We're not here for your money. We're not here for to try to politically influence you. We're not trying to get into your culture and destroy it. We're here Without promise and a truth that is universal. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we pause in silence. We pause to thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, our Father, that He came into this world. That he came into this world to deal with the problems that we have created among ourselves. The problems which were evident there in that scene, in that temple grounds. That he came into the world to deal with the problems in our heart. Our Father, we thank you that you gave your son. So that we could live. And Father, we're reminded as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the command was to look and live. Father, we pray this morning that if there are some here who have not had that personal experience of coming in simple faith and stepping out onto the bridge, that, Father, they may come to that point, even now, of placing their trust in your Son, the Saviour our Father, as we leave, that we may do so in a thoughtful may, way. That, our Father, we may consider what has been said. And as Christians, our Father, that we may leave this morning eternally grateful for what you have done. For God so loved the world. And so, our Father, we thank you for this time we've had in our, your presence. And we pray now as we leave that you part each of us with your blessing.